0: Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical
1: Momentum. Hey guys, welcome to another... It's going to be another great episode because you know we always talk to game changers and thought leaders and this gentleman is both... So I want to hop right into it. He's a pr- prolific author. He's a professor, he's a speaker. He does all the above and he loves veterans. So this is going to be amazing. Get your pen and paper out. Professor, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing real well, Richard. How are you doing, sir?
1: Good. So you're from you're in Hawaii right now. And by the way, I love the University of Hawaii's football stadium. It's truly amazing.
0: Yeah, well, I think they're getting ready to do something with it. Maybe tear it down and start over or refurbish it pretty significantly. I'm, actu- I'm actually at the branch campus in Hilo, so I live on the Big Island, uh, on the east side of the Big Island. Yep.
1: Okay, so now, uh, where were you from and where were you born and what, was, what were you like as a little boy?
0: All right, so my, my story. So, um, my father was a physician, so I was born while he was in medical school. And so we had a lot of moves right after that, so residency, postdoc, first couple of jobs, plus he was in the Air Force. So this was the 1960s. Um, In 1969, my father, I mean, he had all the training and and various um, assignments, but eventually he was deployed to Vietnam. So my father was a Vietnam veteran, and that's what I grew up in was kind of the shadow of, of the Vietnam War into the 70s as the war was winding down. And so I grew up with a lot of awareness of, of veterans, um, a little bit about what, what, what war meant and, and, and how it affected some people. Um, now, I also want to mention another person who was very important to my childhood was my great grandfather. And he was, he was close to 100 years old when I was about 10. And one of the things I like to do is sit on his lap and talk with him about his experiences. Uh, And one of his early life experiences was he is a veteran of the Spanish-American War. And he had fought with the Michigan militia at the base of of Kettle Hill, the Battle of San Juan and Kettle Hill. So I got his story, which was truly remarkable, not for the combat, but for what happened afterwards. So if if okay, Richard, I kind of like to tell his story because it has a bearing on... On my, on my definitely. Story. This yeah. is your
1: time, so let's just hang. We're just—it's like two brothers just hanging out, having a cup of coffee.
0: Roger that. So, um, so my grandfather and his whole unit were brought. It was a very short war in Cuba; it was three or four months. And he was brought home, and they were all sick. They all had malaria, dysentery, whatever. They didn't even know what they had. They were just malnourished and and sick. And they pretty much got mustered out at the dock at. On on Long Island, and we're just kind of dumped there, and told thank you for your service, goodbye. And my grandfather didn't know how he was going to survive because he didn't have much money, and he was in very bad shape physically. He was very sick. And guess what? It wasn't the VA. It wasn't the government. It was a, a private citizen who came down to the dock. It was a wealthy New York uh, socialite, I guess who came down with her horse and buggy and her butler and she took the five or six sickest guys and took them home, nursed them back to health for two or three months and then helped them get home. So that was a powerful story for me. And I think the, the, I guess the point I would like to make here, and I never served, I'm not a veteran myself. I never, I never served, but I think the, the point I want to make is we have a society that's really separated from veterans. The divide is huge, and it's not good for our veteran community or our active duty community. It's not good for, for our, our society at large, this divide between military and civilian. And one of the things that I find really sad is, you know, the VA is a large behemoth of an organization, the largest healthcare organization in the world. I worked there myself for 15 years, and, it's, you know, it, it, it does what it does, and that's fine. The problem I have with our society is, is we do not accept the responsibility at the individual citizen level. We think the VA, oh, veteran VA, they handle all your problems. We don't really need to do much for you. And obviously there are philanthropists and there are foundations trying to fill some of this space, some of this gap. There are many individuals. But by and large, our society is really unaware of what our military has done for the last 20 years and how it's affected the our service members.
1: You know, and like you said, you know, I've had, I have two podcasts now I've interviewed almost 250 different um, veterans and different uh, doctors of psychology. And it's amazing. Like you said, you know, most people will think, you know, they hear a commercial. Oh, you know, that national guardsmen, you know, two weeks out of the year. One, yeah. One weekend. yeah. Easy day. Right. Yeah. But when they look, when they talk to that soldier, you know, they don't realize that in that eight years, they've done three deployments to Afghanistan. And so it's yeah. not, you know, what people actually think that it actually is. And for a National Guardsman, it's harder because you're trying to balance your civilian life sure. with, with your military life. And a lot of times they also clash very heavily. Have you you know talked to national Guardsmen about stuff like that
0: yeah I have and I know that the burden on national guard is is very high I don't think most Americans have any awareness of that and' I'm, just, I'm a hum I mean I do a lot of work with with the veteran and and with some active duty components um, so I'm pretty involved in the community in a variety of ways and in a variety of places in the country but one of the things I try to do as just a humble college professor with my students is work in some of the the act some of the knowledge, some of the awareness, some of the history. What's astonishing to me is, I mean, think about today's college students. If you're 18 years old and you're a freshman or a sophomore, you were born after 9-11, so you don't even have a, a memory of what it was like before 9-11. You don't know what 9-11, you know, felt like and meant to the people who who experienced it and when I say we have troops in we have a we have armed forces in I don't even know what the exact number is 70 80 120 different countries around the globe right now actively involved in operations and the students their jaws drop they don't even realize we're still in Afghanistan many of them so and and I get it college students aren't reading the newspapers and they're not you know in high school they're not following the news carefully I kind of get that, but it, it worries me. We've got a society that doesn't know our own history, our own recent history.
1: And it's true. And and I'm seeing less and less people actually wanting to serve our country. I believe protect, it. You know, and and you know, like I have a, a lot of friends that are still pro- still in the military, and not, there's not a lot of people joining the VFW you know, the, these, you know, um, all these different organizations, um, they're not, they're not getting their, the memberships are so down.
0: Really? Right. Now.
1: Yeah. The VSOs. Because, yeah. Cause I guess a lot of people, you know, they think, well, the VFW was where all the old guys go to uh, drink. Uh, yeah. And stories. So it's kind of like, you know, we have to reinvent ourselves. So now when you first started getting into, you know, uh, with combat veterans you started in what not around 91 so it was coming off a lot of you know back then um, the Gulf War just kicked off and we're still dealing with the after effects of the Vietnam
0: War correct
1: talk to us about you know when you first got into helping combat veterans.
0: sure so um, I did my graduate PhD in clinical psychology University of South Florida and my dissertation was had, a, had to do with combat-related PTSD, and so part of what I arranged to do was to do my uh, fifth-year pre-doctoral internship. It's a national thing, kind of like medical residency, except it's only one year, at a VA uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, The Medi- and I had an, you know was at the Medical University of South Carolina as a trainee, and that was 91, and then 92, I finished as a trainee, completed my degree, and I started a full-time job at the at the same VA where I just spent the last year as a trainee. So you're right, 1991, 92, a couple of things. First of all, PTSD was not even made into a diagnosis until 1980, so it wasn't added to, this, to the psychiatric lexicon. So when I got my degree in 92, PTSD was a relatively, was a very new diagnosis, um, and it was a new disorder. We didn't, you know, if you look at the, at the curve of publications, since 1980 you know it's a, it's an ever go you know the, the slope goes you know way up 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 over the years so in 92 we didn't there was a lot of information we didn't have then that maybe we have now but the the people that I, the, the veterans that i served were 99% male most were vietnam veterans a lot of vietnam veterans and at that time they were in their late 40s mid 40s late 40s uh, I saw a lot of a lot of Korean War veterans, a fair number of World War II veterans, and we were just starting to get a small trickle of the original or of the first Persian Gulf War, which had just just ended.
1: And I think it, it must have been pretty interesting talking to the, that veteran about the Spanish American War. I'm sure that had to be like, wow, people don't <laughs> even think about hear about that anymore. Yeah, you know?
0: yeah. Well, that was my grandfather, so of course, a lot of that was family history and, and, you know, he was a special person in the family, but right. I mean, we, we've, we've had, we have we had as a nation, we've had a number of very significant wars, but also a number of very small wars. I don't think it to the individual soldier. I don't think it matters the size of the war. It's the experience of being overseas in a dangerous, uh, in a dangerous place, fighting, fighting a war. Um, I don't think it, and I'm not sure that it's necessarily truly fundamentally different if you look from the Civil War through any of our wars.
1: So, you know, as we all know, you know, we, we always hear about the number 22, you know, but, you know, because um, all the people that I've talked to and had on my shows, you know, the real numbers are uh, upwards of 35 first responders a day commit suicide, including 22 veterans and two active duty soldiers um, commit suicide every day, but that's only 50% of the States actually reporting suicide. So I'm sure the numbers are much, much higher. What are you seeing trending? You know, you know, it seems like a lot of people are talking about it, but there's not a whole lot being done about it.
0: Yeah. Right. So this has been an issue um, that has been kind of on our on our awareness for about 15 years now, 15, 20 years now. The concern of active-duty veteran, of active-duty active combatant suicides or of, of current ser- service members and also of veterans. And, Richard, I'm going to agree with you. I don't think we really know. I don't think the data is very good. I don't think it's reported very comprehensively. And you get into challenges of even interpreting some of the data. So, technically... What counts as a suicide is only when the coroner makes that ruling. So what happens in the case of a one one vehicle fatal uh, motor vehicle accident? Is that a suicide or is that a, an accident? And it depends on how it gets recorded and depends on the coroner.
1: Yep, because like I know at least three guys in my old unit actually drank themselves to death.
0: And so that's a whole other thing is there's the there's the, suicide, the active suicide, as in somebody who's, who plans a suicide using an immediate means, like a gun or a rope um, or a knife. And then there's the, the people that slowly kill themselves with drugs or alcohol or, or other self-destructive kind of behaviors. But, you well, know, you know we, we published, one of my really good colleagues here is a historian, and we published a, a study about a year and a half ago in one of the JAMA network journals. And we, we worked, I, I'm a clinical psychologist working with a team of historians. And we tracked down suicide, active duty suicides uh, for the U.S. Army going, going back 200 years. And so we were able to draw essentially a, a timeline since 1819 since up through present day. And of course, the records aren't great Prior to the Civil War, but starting in the Civil War, we have really pretty good data on active duty uh, army suicides. And what we found was there's a, I mean, there have always been suicides. Um, Interestingly, in American history, the active duty suicide rates actually drop during wartime. So you see a drop in suicide rates during the American Civil War, and then they go up a little bit after the war. Same thing when you get to World War One and World War Two. Today, we're seeing a different trend, a different pattern. Rates of suicide are much higher than they've been in the past. So, from a historical perspective, I think we need to be worried. I think we need to be very worried. What's happening now is is an ahistorical pattern.
1: So now, you now I've seen that you've talked to you know, you've been involved with the VA and all these different organizations. So when they ask your opinion on what we can do to help save more lives, what is your response? I know it's hard to, to make a canned response, but no, I have a response, the, you know, for the people that are listening, you know, what is, what can we do? What are, are we able to do?
0: Yeah. And, and I do have, I do have some thoughts on this. And certainly not a pers- not a perfect answer. But but one thought I, I have is for veterans and you can tell me about this, but as a veteran, when you leave the service, and you come and you you're sort of welcome back to civilian life, civilian society. Is it a welcome or is it a is it a cold bucket of water that's dumped on you?
1: You know, everybody's transitioning story is different. Right. But, you know, it's kind of, you know, like in the military, we're taught. You know, you train until the mission is complete. And then when a military ex-military personnel takes a job in a civilian sector, it's kind of like, all right, half hour break, lunch. And then we're out of here at four o'clock and there's still work left to do. Military guys like, wait a minute. We're not done here. Yeah. We still got work to do. So a lot of times we just, you know, it's kind of like when, I talk to a lot of guys and gr when they get out, they put out their resumes and it's all full of military jargon. And yep. you know, the reader's eyes glass over. Right. How do you translate that? And then they just throw it into the pile. We're like, oh, I, I don't understand it. So yeah. I'm not, uh, look at it. So, you know, a lot of that happens. And if you, you know, like if you've been in the military and like me, I was a tank commander. There's not a lot of jobs out there that's looking for tank commanders.
0: Yeah. Right,
1: So you kind of like have to find your way in, in life. And I think this, the hardest part for me was, you know, I was in for 23 years Holy and God. my whole thing was be Sergeant Kaufman. And then when I yeah. got hurt and they medically discharged me, well, who am I now?
0: Right. Who are you? What's your mission? What's your identity? What's your purpose? Who's your tribe? All those questions smack you right in the face. So, yeah. So what, I, well, let me, give you a chance to finish Richard. And then I'll go back to the suicide
1: question. No, I'm saying, you know, everybody transition story is different, but you know, like when I got out, I thought, Hey, the world is my oyster. I'm a veteran. I'm going to get offered so many jobs. And they're like, Mm -hmm. okay, you're a veteran. Okay. So what here's, here's a free meal at friendly's on, on on veterans. Day. have a great day.
0: Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Thank you for your service. Uh, Um, yeah, there's a lot of kabuki out there, a lot of kabuki theater. What? So here's my thought. Suicide prevention efforts are, are mostly bullshit. There, there's very little evidence that a, a so-called suicide prevention program works at the population level. Hotlines, who calls them? Really? I mean, really, not very many people call them. I've worked on a, on a hotline, never got any calls. I, I did three years on a, as a hotline a volunteer when I was in college, and never got a call. Um, and that's not, and that's not the only piece of evidence. That's just my own anecdotal experience. But the specific suicide prevention efforts don't ever seem to work. So you know, President Trump started a the Prevents committee, and I forget what the acronym Prevents stood for, but it was basically an anti-suicide committee. And they spent a year or two um, convening and meeting and doing things, and they released a report. They patted themselves on the back, and it was all done. So I don't even know what they actually did. But um, I don't think suicide prevention works. Here's what I do think would work, um, a fundamental reshift of what the VA is and, and how it functions. And I would, I would even start further down upstream than that by, you know, this is, again, if I were in charge of everything and could, could make the policy recommendations, I think we need a national service mandate. For all, all young people at, at some point in their early adult life, national service in the military or education or humanity, humanitarian efforts, you know, a lot of different things. It doesn't have to be military service, but I think we, should, we could take a page out of, the, out of Switzerland or Israel and really, I think, strengthen our society by doing that. And that would be good for all of us good for our entire country and society if we did something like that. And I think that that would have eventually have the effect of helping veterans be more understood and more, more well received by civilian society. Now, the other thing I'm going to say is we are doing a disservice to our veterans by saying, Richard, you, I think you have PT. I'm, I'm the VA speaking here. Richard, you have, you have PTSD and we're going to treat you for that. There's disability for that. And, but the problem is we don't really expect you to get better. And that's the message the VA often sends, folks. PTSD is a life sentence. There's the very common narrative in American society that veterans are broken and we feel sorry for them. I, you know, I don't think that's a very productive approach for anybody to take. PTSD is a treatable condition. You can get better. Um, the problem is... And here's my second problem with VA, and I a lot of problems with the VA. I worked there for 15 years, left in 2006. And so I feel like I have a, enough awareness to be, be critical of the VA in certain ways. They have not gotten to the point where they can understand that it's not just about PTSD. If you have PTSD and they treat that, fine. But what if part of your problem is sleep apnea? So you're not sleeping. And what if part of your problem is you have low testosterone? And what if part of your problem is you've got traumatic brain injury that the VA doesn't recognize because they don't understand what blast wave exposure does? They don't understand that pulling a trigger, um, firing a rocket, normal activities in the military, things that we don't think of as being in causing injuries, but they do. And the VA is is not caught up on that. So my problem with the VA is treating PTSD in isolation. From all the other things that are going on, in, for many veterans, it's just not that useful. There are pathophysiological things happening in a veteran's body that are not going to be treated by going in and having a conversations with a psychologist or taking five, six different seven, seven different psychiatric medications.
1: There's so much stuff I can get I want to get into, and I'm so grateful to be able to talk to you today. Yesterday, I had the honor and privilege to talk to, doc, you know, Dr. Shauna, and we were talking right. about, yep, Shauna and, Springer. I, yeah, I know, yep. her.
0: she's good, she's her, written a nice book,
1: Yep, and, her book was amazing, and I'm actually, I was actually, um, me and her episode is going to come out on March 10th, we did an episode together, okay, and, yep, you know, we're talking about mental health issues, and, you know, in one of her books is, is called, you know, one of her chapters is called, How Dare You? to where, you know, we're we're carrying around guilt, you know, because most people, the human psychology is not supposed to see things that a lot of military personnel have done or have seen. And, you know, like I told, like I said, I'm not a professional at all. I'm only ninth grade, ninth grade dropout. But I've, you know, been doing this a while that I find that when an adult acts out, it's usually because stuff that happened between the ages of three and 13. Then you add alcohol to the mix. Then you add war to the mix. Yep. And you have the perfect storm. And nobody tells you how to get out of the perfect storm unless somebody's been in the perfect storm.
0: Well, let's add more to the mix because sleep apnea means you're not sleeping very well. Even though yep. you might think you're sleeping, you're not getting the quality of sleep that you need. Um, so again, it's more than it, it's even the mix is a lot of, there's a lot of things in the mix. And then you put in the transition challenges, the, the mission and purpose challenges. Uh, it's, it's, it's massive. It's massive.
1: You know, and like you said, you know, I was in the
0: health and fitness industry for over 30 years
1: and, um, I also have a TBI, but also people don't realize, like I was in tanks for over 20 years. Every time you, you launch a round, round down range. Your your body's moving, your head is moving. Even though they give you a cheap CVC to wear,
0: yeah,
1: you're still getting yeah. some issues. And you know, like I'm very big on. I wish the VA would actually start talking to soldiers about TBIs and eventually, you know, CTE, because I think a lot of people have gone undiagnosed that have committed suicide because of having C- CTE.
0: You know, I, I agree. And, and Richard, can I tell you, it's, it's even worse than that and it's more complicated than that. Um, so could I just give a, a little, uh, maybe a two minute primer on TBI? Oh, no, I'm,
1: I'm enjoying this. I'm so grateful and I'm actually learning a lot. So thank you.
0: Right. So there's two different types of TBI and we only talk about one of them. The VA only really seems to be aware. And I don't, you know, it's not fair of me to say the VA as if everybody in the VA is the same. Of course, there's, there's, there's a wide range of experiences and expertise, and, and so it's not being missed everywhere. But there's two different types of, of brain injury. One is the one we're familiar with, impact forces. You get hit on the head, you get punched, you fall off, off the back of a truck, um, you're in an automobile accident, you played football, you wrestled and bonked your head. Impact injuries, hit your head with a, with a force. It it rat, It literally rattles the brain back and forth. It, it floats. It, it 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 essentially whip whiplashes back and forth inside your skull, and you get bruising, physical bruising of the brain, that can lead to a concussion. And those add up over time, and can lead to what we we now are calling chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE. The problem with that is we can't diagnose it while you're alive. It's only recognizable on a post-mortem brain study. So that's the, that's the bad news. All we can do is, is record the history of, of impact forces and then look at deficits, cognitive de- deficits. Now, let me tell you, there's a second type of brain injury, and that's the blast wave injuries. A Completely different type of injury. It's not an impact force. It's the blast waves actually go through the soft tissue of your body. It's a shearing force. Now, it might, it, it, it's also a physical force. It'll knock you down. It can knock you down or push you over, but it's, it, it will go through your, through your body. So it goes, these, goes through the brain, through the lungs, through the, all the delicate muscles, and in middle and inner ear, uh, ear organs. So it, it destroys things without leaving any mark that we can see. And as of about five years ago, in 2016, there was a paper published by a pathologist at Walter Reed, Daniel Pearl, phenomenal guy, terrific work. He was working with the brains of folks who had, who had died but had massive records of, historical records of blast wave exposure. And what he found in his postmortem studies was a completely different signature or signal in the brain, if you will. The, the CTE is, is, is marked by a buildup of tau proteins. This blast wave exposure is marked by, a, and it requires a whole different type of approach to find it and look for it, but it's scarring. They find scarring in the glial cells of the brain. So they've now named this Interface Astroglial Scarring it's a type of brain injury and we're just now starting to, to, to wonder hmm it seems to affect the pituitary because hormones are affected we think it, it may contribute to sleep apnea which is a, a an easy a relatively easy condition to treat but if you don't treat it with the, with the proper proper steps it's going to leave you exhausted uh, because you're not getting the the rem sleep or the or especially the slow deep deep Slow wave deep sleep that we need,
1: and you know, and I totally get that. You know, because when I tell you know when I when I was personal training people that you know your body doesn't grow in the gym, it grows as you sleep and you and that's and recovery, when you actually, right you, you know that's when you that's when your body actually uh, recovers. And then if you're not getting sleep, then you're getting hopped then hopped up on energy drinks and caffeine. Yeah, and then. And then that screws you up, also. Yep. So it's like one thing, and it just leads to the next, to the next, to, to, and it just becomes a chronic. You know, it's kind of like get up, go to work, pay the bills, get up, go to work to pay the bills. You know, yeah. and it, your body just ends up wearing out, just like anything else. You know,
0: what you said was a moment ago is super important, and it leads into what you what you just finished with, which is recovery. You don't build your muscles. Don't grow while you're in the chill, they, gym. They recover. They, they grow while you're recovering, and they don't grow very well if you're not recovering. So I think we've got. I mean, I think that's a whole problem for a lot of a lot of our service members and veterans. Is they're they're not recovered, um, and that requires yeah. recovery. Requires sleep. It requires rest and relaxation. It also requires a good diet, healthy diet, um, healthy lifestyle. You know, minimizing substances. and and whatnot, taking care of your gut health, exercising, um, appropriately, but not overdoing it and leaving the time for rest and recovery afterwards.
1: So now, okay. Now, you know, we talked to a lot of people, you know, we get diagnosed with, with a TBI or post-traumatic stress. Um, what are something, some of the things that we can do besides, you know, the narcotics besides, you know, getting hopped up on, on different drugs or alcohol, what are some of the things that we can do to help, you know, help our brain a little bit like me? I found that I had sleep problems and I was taking a certain medicine. I'm not going to say from who or where, but I noticed that I, I started taking three milligrams of melatonin a night Mm -hmm. and slept so much better. Yeah. I got so much better rest. Yeah. I got into deep REM where I started dreaming again. So what are some of the things that we can do to help start improving our quality of life?
0: Good question. So, well, there's, there's the, the things that we can do for ourselves, lifestyle habits, et cetera. And then there's the the clinical side, the treatments that we can search out and find. And, and so both are important. Um, I would say let's start with the with the self management, if you will, the things we can do for ourselves. So, I I, in my the guys that I coach and work with, I try to get them to understand. Let's let's prioritize sleep. Let's prioritize your gut health. And and let's do both by prioritizing reducing systemic inflammation in your body. So chronic and chronic systemic inflammation. Let's Let's put that on the list of things we want to, emit, we want to reduce, um, and that will bring massive improvements to our health everywhere. So let me just explain. Acute inflammation, you cut your finger, you know, and, 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 and it turns red, and you get a scab, and, it, and the skin around it is red. That's inflammation that's there fighting an injury. It's helping clean up an injury and helping you heal and recover. That's acute inflammation. We can have chronic inflammation from chronic stress, from a modern diet, from not exercising, from not sleeping well. So that inflammation that, that, that can build up in, within in many of us is, is responsible or is a major contributing factor to depression, to cognitive problems, to development of dementia, cancers, cardiac problems, pulmonary problems, it's involved in really any kind of problem we, health problem, medical health condition we as humans have. So anything that minimizes inflammation is gonna be good for us. So what minimizes inflammation? Well, that's exercise, good sleep, um, plenty of fiber, lean protein, fruits and vegetables, not drinking too much, not smoking, et cetera, et cetera. Then some other practices, um, did, I don't know. Did I mention exercise? That's, that's certainly part of it. Um, removing sugar, removing processed foods from your diet. Uh, for me, I think of sugar and, and, and processed anything are the worst things we can put into our bodies. Uh, fast food, junk food, not good for us. Energy drinks, not good for us. These things are, are jacking up our, our nervous systems and our entire metabolism and our entire bodies and our systems. Um, other things you can do. I mean, there, there are things that I think are really useful. Meditation, spending time outdoors. I know that these are all kind of cliches, but, but they're cliches for a reason. Uh, they help people. And when I say meditation, that, that could be prayer. It could be yoga. It could be any of the different types of meditation or mindfulness practices. Um, and there's even little gadgets that will help um, guide you to a state of deeper, um, of, of deeper consciousness. Um, to help with the meditation, so I like all of those. A lot of guys I know find relief in things like therapeutic float tanks. Um, let's see, what else? What are some? Well, I know, things
1: like my people- one of my uh, mentors, Ed Milet. You know, he loves float tanks, and I think that's pretty awesome. Something that guys that I also do. You know, I was in the health and fitness industry for thirty years. Yeah, tell me. I take turmeric. It helps me with inflammation. I do thousand milligrams yeah. of turmeric a day, and I find that helps Same me here. out. I, you know, Same here. I, yep. I can't I take
0: you take them in tablets. Yeah, capsules.
1: I can't eat the food because it just burns yeah. me. So I take the yeah. turmeric in yeah. capsules. And I was about yeah. an hour ago before I got I was on with you. I, I actually interviewed a guy named his name is uh, Peter C A N N, and he has he does something called laugh yoga and we were, yeah, Which I've never heard of it, but it was really interesting that um, if you laugh for 10 minutes, it's equal to doing an hour and an hour, half of exercise in the body. So I started thinking, wow, you know, it would be so interesting if, you know, if we're feeling down instead of going on Facebook and bitching and complaining about it or going on CNN news, if we would just pop a comedy tape in or yes. know, funny yes. movie for an hour, hour and a half, if that would actually help a lot instead of just getting into our own heads or going somewhere and, compl- and complaining about it. Cause then everybody, all the other negative people are going to be jumping on and it just becomes one, right. one negative thing after another. So I think that was pretty interesting, right. you know, talking about um, the 10 benefits of laughter and I never thought about that until I interviewed him. I was like, wow, that might help a lot of people just to be if you're able to laugh a little bit.
0: Well, laughter's the best medicine. Yeah. Remember that? That used to be, that used to be a column in, in, in the Reader's Digest. And I think it, I think it came from I'm blocking on the guy's name. He wrote a very famous book um, in the 20s or 30s. But basically, he says he, he was sick and he cured himself by watching Marx Brothers movies. Might have been, might have been much later. It might have been the 40s, 50s, or 60s. I don't remember who it was, but I've, here's my thought on that. I don't know if laughter is as good as exercise. It, it probably definitely burns calories, and, and you know, you're tightening your core muscles while you're laughing. But it's certainly going into a flow state, a positive flow state from watching a, a, a movie that's, that's absorbing and gripping, uh, and especially if it's, if it's making you laugh and smile. How could that not be good for you?
1: Yeah. So you, know, so, you, how, know, how you seem seem to be in good shape. So and physically and mentally. So tell us what your routines are like and tell us what, you know, your eating habits are like. Because, you know, a lot of times when people are like, yeah, oh, you know, um, he says one thing, but who knows what he really does. So that's why I ask a lot of people, right. you know, well, right. what is your routine right. and what yeah. is your eating habits yeah. like? Okay. And, and what do you do okay. for self-care?
0: Thank you. Thank you. Ah, that's a good question. Um, probably not enough, uh, honestly. Um, but let's see, what do I do? So I usually start my day about 5.30 or 6. And I get up, I read the news, drink a cup of coffee and start working by 6.30 or 7. Some, some days I start at 6.00. And I will go till about 10 or 11. Sometimes it's even later. Yesterday, I didn't eat until 1 o'clock in the afternoon. So I try to make my first calories of the day a little bit later in mid to late morning. And so I do a a time-restricted feeding. I try to get all my calories roughly between 8 and – I'm sorry, roughly between 10 and 6. So an 8-hour, to 8-9-hour feeding window. And My first meal of the day is a smoothie. And it'll be probably about 2,000 calories, typically. Uh, I put blueberries, other berries, carrots. I put in either yogurt or kefir for the probiotics and the, and the, and the calcium. I, my wife has an orchard of, of trees, so whatever fruits she's got, I'll throw some of that in. Sometimes a little spinach. Then I'll add nuts and seeds, a variety of mixtures, walnuts, flax seeds, Hemp seeds, you know, a bunch of seeds. Then I'll add sesame seeds, pumpkin seeds. Then I'll put in some, this is a long list, isn't it? Mushroom extracts, protein powders, some good fat. And then I'll blur it up in, in the blender and, and suck it down. And then I take my, a few supplements afterwards, including turmeric supplement. I take a multivitamin, take vitamin D, vitamin C, um, And then, so that's my, that's my first meal of the day. And then I try to end the day with a, with a meal that's relatively low. uh, I mean, relatively high in protein, lean protein, um, beef or fish usually and vegetables. And probably it's not, I wouldn't say a no carb, but probably slightly lower than, than maybe is typical. And then I try not to, to eat any processed foods or any sugar except I do allow myself to have a small number of chocolate covered, dark chocolate covered Mac. Macabre. I
1: love dark chocolate. I'm a big fan. That's my favorite.
0: <laughs> I, I, I'm a sucker for dark chocolate. Yeah.
1: So now yeah, what, what is your opinion on neurotropics And, you know, now coming down the line, you know, there's a lot of studies that I've been reading about um, psychedelics, uh, helping uh-huh. veterans struggling with, you know, PTSD and, so what is your opinion on nootropics and also on some of the stuff that's coming down the line? What are your thoughts? Psych-
0: yeah, psychotropics, psychedelics. Um, psychedelics, I'm really fascinated by. I have no personal experience with them. Myself, I've never used any psychedelic compound. The, in the 50s and 60s, psychology and psychiatry was doing a lot with, psych- with, with psychedelic compounds, using them in treatment. And then we decided, nope, that's a bad idea. We outlawed them and we forgot about them for almost 50 years. And now they're coming. Now we're we're, we're back to looking at them. And I think possibly this is driven by veterans. I think probably the last 10 years, veterans have been exploring and looking for answers and dabbling and experimenting. There's a program in Mexico that welcomes veterans to like a three-day retreat that involves a couple different types of psychedelic compounds. And I know a number of guys that have gone down there and had a really great experience. They describe it as game changing. I'm not necessarily pushing it, but it, it, it is something that some guys have found to be helpful. Now to bring this back around to modern science, the fields of psychology, psychiatry, mental health, we are now doing clinical trials all over the country using psychedelic compounds, ketamine, sometimes known as special K on the street ketamine has been used for a long time in emergency surgeries as an adjunct to anesthesia because it creates sort of an otherworldly experience that distracts people from the pain and suffering or the potential of their own impending death now we now that that same substance ketamine has been has now has FDA approval as a as a treatment for depression it's a it's it's infused into the bloodstream. So you you schedule appointments. You go into the clinic. They infuse it into your bloodstream, and then you sit there for a couple hours to be observed, and then you go home, and you do that period. And it's that's periodic. Other studies that are going on right now are testing pretty much everything you can imagine. Um, there are clinical trials for PTSD with, that have been that have used MDMA. There there are studies going on right now where they're using. Uh, psilocybin plus psychotherapy which is fascinating so in this one study at my at my um, one of the medical schools I'm affiliated with in Houston at University of Texas doing a, a study where it, patients come in for a, a essentially all day treatment they come in they get the, the dose of psilocybin in, immediately in the morning and then when it takes effect they spend about 10 to 12 hours talking with a therapist and it's actually not just one therapist because that's a long time for a therapist to go. So they tag team. They'll have two therapists kind of tag team for that. So we're doing that research and individuals um, who are suffering are doing their own research by experimenting and and searching out and exploring.
1: Okay. So now uh, what
0: what do you think of psychedelics?
1: Unfortunately um, I'm in recovery. I've been clean for over 30 years and at one point I was addicted to um LSD. So I'm kind of very skeptical and it's kind of, it's not in my wheelhouse. Yeah. So I uh, you know it's very interesting studies that I'm I'm learning about. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of people have asked me because they knew I was in the industry for 30 years. Hey I got some uh coffee and it's infused with C B D would you like some and I'm like uh no I'm good you know <laughs> you know because <laughs> yeah. if I'm recovery I don't want to go back to day one because just trying something out, so I have a different perspective right. on it. But now I have a question yeah. for you, well, um, because the people, every people are listening to this and they're going to learn a lot. What is your definition? Because I love the paper that you wrote um, on resiliency. What is the definition, the real definition of resiliency?
0: <laughs> I like that you ask that. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say resilience is a farce. We don't have a definition of resilience. We don't agree on it. And I think different people have their own ideas about it. But I don't think we've got a coherent understanding of what we're even talking about when we say resilience. So, for example, are you resilient if you develop PTSD but go on with your life and, you know, kind of master your PTSD and live your life effectively? Is that resilience? or is resilience never to have developed PTSD in the first place? Is it resilience, is, is resilience a word we use to scare people uh, into, into being aware of the, the other side, the side of the pathology? So we wanna emphasize uh, resilience. I don't, I don't know, I don't know what it means and I don't know that we as a society have any kind of agreement mm-hmm. on it. There's, there's a whole other topic or maybe another word, phrase that might have, have maybe some special implications called post-traumatic growth. And that's the idea that, that regardless of how maybe you're harmed by, your, by traumatic experiences, you can also learn from them and benefit from them in ways. So, And I think the, the, the concept for me of post-traumatic growth um, really kind of led by a guy named Richard Tedeschi, a psychologist, and I think he's in Virginia now. Maybe North Carolina is is a, is, a, is an important concept, and so you can you probably know this yourself. A lot of what you saw and did in the military really wasn't wasn't good. It wasn't um, pleasant, and it, it may have harmed you and damaged you and changed your opinion of of humanity. At the same time, I'm guessing there are things that you've taken from that that you've that you can say, and most people can do this. You know what? I learned this, and that was a really that was a really good thing. My my traumatic experiences. I've grown from them in certain ways. And thirty years of sobriety—that sounds like post-traumatic growth or resilience or something in that in that framework. I'm not sure what. Yeah, you know, it, like
1: so. um, like my like I said, Ed, Ed lead is something I really somebody I look up to a lot, and he talks about your mess being your mess being your message. But you know, and he says that things do not happen to you; everything happens for you. Everything is a teachable Mm -hmm. lesson. So if you look at it and stop playing the pity party game, instead of saying, you know, why me? And start saying, well, why not me? You know, why are we so special in the world that we shouldn't expect problems to happen? You know, what makes us so special? And once you change that mindset, you know, I think a lot of things start to change. So tell us about you being a performance specialist with Grey Go Solutions. What is that all about?
0: Ah, okay. So Eric Grey, my good friend and brother Eric Grey, is a former Army. He did 25 years in the Army, Special Forces. And we, we've we done a little bit of work together with some special mission folks um, working on, on performance and Let's see, what, what, would, what, what would I call it? Kind of a blend of wellness and performance at the same time. So working with guys or groups or teams to help them understand, first of all, we, we talk about some, I actually do some assessments, uh, including some cognitive assessments so that, we can be, so that we can start by saying, okay, so where are you now? Where are you psychologically? Where are you physiologically? What do your hormones look like? What is your neurocognitive functioning? abilities, strengths, and weaknesses or deficits, and trying to put it all together and then to help the individuals with their performance. And I, and I would say you could, do, you could apply that model to anything. What, what we've been doing is we've, some of our work has been with some of the folks, some of the, um, some of the operational medicine folks that do tactical, tactical medicine, like, like, like the folks that have been bringing Americans home from around the world. Um, the guys that evacuated Wuhan, China uh, a year ago or a year and 13 months ago when we were first hearing about COVID and things like that. Um, I've done a little bit of coaching with active duty guys who are, who are prepping and preparing for various, um, you know, milestone unit selection programs and things like that. Um, I, I view it, you know, I, I view it as two sides of the same coin. We can, view, we can view you as needing clinical services, clinical care, medical care. And I kind of think of that as being kind of to the right of, of some point on a continuum. And to the left point on that continuum are all the things that people need to do to take better care of themselves, to perform better, to improve their quality of life, but also so that they get past that point their clinical needs and difficulties are less than they might otherwise be. So I see it as kind of part two, two parts of a continuum.
1: Now I a question. Performing. I'm sure you've been well, interviewed a bunch of times by a lot of people, but I want this last part of the interview. I want you, I want Christopher Bartley to talk to me about his books and why he wrote his book.
0: Oh, Oh, thank you. Well, that's that. Uh, thank you for asking. Thank you even for knowing about. I got that. to do oh, my cool. my
1: due diligence, and uh, I do, and I'm a big. Sure and I'm a big reader, sure so did. I can't wait to get my hands on the books.
0: <laughs> okay, so uh, I'll, I'll tell that story kind of quickly. I know we only have a few minutes left. So I've I've always wanted to be. I've always wanted to write. I've always enjoyed writing, and I went to Kenyon College, which has a long literary history in, in America in the 20th century, at least. So I. I've um, written several books, some of which were never published. Um, in 2009, I, I somehow landed a, a British literary agent, and my first book was published in 2013. So I've I've written eight novels under the pen name Christopher Bartley. I'm not trying to hide myself, it just I don't know. It just my agent suggested that might be a better name to write under. So that's fine. It's an inversion, my okay. first and middle name, Christopher Bartley. Yeah, that's where that name, that's where the name comes from. Um, so my, my middle name is Chris, Bartley's my first name. So I like, I grew up reading the classic hard-boiled mysteries of Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, um, Ross McDonald, and many, many, John McDonald, and many others. And loved all the movies, the Humphrey Bogart movies, um, still do. Still read those books, still watch those old movies. So I wanted to write a book that I would enjoy reading. So my books, I've written eight, actually nine. One hasn't yet been published. Um, about a bank robber set in 1934. So it's, they're hard-boiled crime novels written kind of in the style of some of the older hard-boiled crime writers of, of the earlier half or part, part of, the 19, of the 20th century. And really, my stories are about one bank robber in particular who, but 1934 is a very specific historical context. So my real goal is telling stories about America from the perspective of a a professional criminal um, who's kind of a bad guy, but he's also the good guy of the stories. And so he's the narrator in the stories, and he has these different experiences with organized crime, with Other criminals, but also a lot of intersection with societal issues related to race, politics, um, corruption in in federal and and local government corruption, as well as just talking as well as just describing and telling stories of ordinary Americans.
1: I love that. So now the last two questions I have, how do we find you? Um, How do we get in touch with you? How do we order your books?
0: Well, all my books are on Amazon so you can order paperback or kindle books off via amazon. I will say the eight books kind of go in order but throughout the course of a year so they're timed to histor- they're pegged to historical events but they're not really they each each book is an independent novel so you don't have to start at the beginning necessarily. I also published a, a separate different type of book that's that's that came out in 2019 fall called a Season Past. And that actually involves a novella I wrote almost 30 years ago. So a book that I wrote in my youth, and then I wrote a couple other books to go with it. So it's two novellas and a short story. They're set in different times, but they're all kind of love stories, but also stories of, of a veteran, combat veteran struggles after the war, after their wars. So one is about a Civil War veteran set in 20th century, turn of the century. One is about a returning GI after World War II. And the last short story is kind of a love story to my wife. Um, It's a story about, it's actually a true story about a day of a hike we took in Tent Rocks Park, uh, New Mexico. It's near Albuquerque, New Mexico. And we met a fellow out there and we just had a conversation about, he was a Vietnam veteran and we had a long conversation with him. That was kind of meaningful, powerful. And so third story is just that day. But they're all on Amazon and What's so how do we find you if
1: there? we want to get in touch with you about coaching or anything like that? Or even just to find some of your 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 writings so we can actually start getting better and getting healthier mentally?
0: Well, my all my scientific writings are available on Google Scholar or Medline. I mean, they're all they're all public access. If there's a particular paper you want that you can't find, you could send me an email. You could reach out to me. You can find me on LinkedIn as well.
1: Um so how do you say your last so, name?
0: Yeah. Uh, my last name is pronounced free as in f r e uh, cuz we have a my and, my yeah
1: my teachers my kids teacher swimming teacher he's spelled the same way but it's Fru he he says it's Fru That's why I was like wow was okay. like, that'd be interesting.
0: Yeah it, it's fair enough it, it I mean you can't look at it and know how to really pronounce it it was changed at Ellis Island. So my great grandfather's name was, would have been spelled F R U with an umlaut over the U and then H. And it, 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 the word means early in German and it's pronounced very differently. I won't even try to pronounce it because I make a fool of myself, but it was changed. At That's Ellis cool. When,
1: you know, a lot of people don't realize how many things got changed. Like I've had, I got like, Three different spellings of our name, all from Ellis Island, and they all came on the same day. It was just like whatever, they, whatever they decided yeah. to write. That was what it was.
0: Right, whichever line you were in, you got yeah. that, that person's pet 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 translation. So, last
1: question is, you know, since we live in a crazy world, you know, with we COVID, do. and okay. we got grandparents teaching homeschooling kids and. So if I ask somebody to do something in in the next seven days, they're likely not going to get to it. But if I ask somebody to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're more likely. So if somebody is struggling with, you know, depression, uh, PTS, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to start to get help?
0: Call, make a phone call, pick up the phone or better yet, talk to somebody you love and trust in person. Let them know you're hurting. Ask them to help you get help. The easiest place to start is with your primary care doc. Primary care docs triage everything in the world. And they will they can do they can take steps to help you in the moment acutely, but they also also can can make whatever referrals are necessary to the specialists that they see as necessary. So Talk to a friend, talk to a loved one, a trusted one. Talk to a primary care doc, and of course, if if it's truly a, a, an absolute emergency, call nine one one. I love
1: that. <laughs> thank you so much for hanging out with us today.
0: Oh, Richard, I appreciate you your time, and uh,
1: I've learned a lot. And I can't wait to delve into some of your your teachings, and I can't wait to pick up your books. I'm so excited, and I'll put and I'll put all those. Huh. Um, Everything I'll put them in a liner note so people can can get in touch with you and and, um, pick up your books and whatever else you got going on.
0: Oh, thank you. That's awesome. Appreciate it. And if you ever want me to come back, Uh, I'd love to. Thank
1: you so much and have an amazing day. Have have a great weekend.
0: Okay. you too, sir. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.